those who showed up while the lights were off. Glad you're here. Good morning to those who are listening online. Uh, always, always good to uh, just take time whenever it works to put, put his word in your heart. Um, excited this morning to uh, be in part 10 of a series. I don't know if we've ever done a series this long before, but we, if you haven't been here in a while, you're getting in somewhere in the middle. We, we started a series right around Christmas uh, and taking it right up till Easter. Uh, it's, it was, uh, the, the, the thought behind it came from a series that I'd heard by Andy Stanley called 90, where they just took 90 days looking at the life of Jesus. And so we've just decided to do something similar. Uh, you can listen to that series as well. Different material, but good as well. Uh, and the question that we've asked ourselves is, in light of, the, in light of the, the fact that we have so many definitions for the word Christian in, in North America, it means so many different things to so many different people. What does it mean to us when we say, are you a Christian? Are you actually, if you say you're a Christian, are you actually following Jesus? That's a question I think we, we all need to ask ourselves. And, it, and, and when our lives are like, yeah, I'm a Christian, and then it comes up against something that Jesus says in our lives, it's like, well, which decision do we make? Yeah, Jesus, I'm going to follow you in this. Or do we like, ah, no, 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 I'm, I'm good. I, I'm, I'm a Christian. Uh, and so what we've decided to do is take a look at what it was like to follow Jesus uh, and we have eyewitness reports of that, which is pretty pretty cool. Uh, we've got a guy named Matthew who was there. He's like, this is what it looked like to follow Jesus. We had John who was there, and he's like, I, I saw this stuff happen, and here's what it looks like to follow Jesus. We got a guy named Mark who hung out with Peter who was there and said, this is what it looks like. And, and as well as Luke saying, anybody seen what Jesus, what it was like following Jesus? Tell me your stories. Let me put it all together so that whoever, you know, reads it down the road will know uh, what it was like to follow Jesus. And We've said, we've said is just Jesus came to start something brand new. He changed the way they thought about everything, about God, about re- religion, about relationships, about life. He changed everything. And so uh, for, for them, it was, wasn't always easy to face those changes, and it's not always easy for us. So as we get started this morning, I just ask you this question. Have you, have you ever needed an attitude adjustment? Uh-huh, Monday mornings. <laughs> uh, you know, maybe, you've, maybe you have parents, and you, you have kids, and you tell them, Listen, you know, that you tell them something and they give you attitude. I don't want any of that attitude, right? You better adjust your attitude. Maybe you've had that. Maybe your spouse has told you that. Uh, that can happen too. Um, when I was a kid, though, like my parents didn't use words. They had this tool. Um, <laughs> this was the instant attitude adjuster. Uh, the beloved wooden, wooden spoon. I probably shouldn't have said that in case I might incriminate them while they're listening. But um, it, it did work sometimes. As an adult, I have a new adjustment for an attitude adjuster. I just go here, uh, and this usually changes my attitude. Yes, yeah, some of you agree, uh, it, but it sometimes goes the opposite way. I think it's going to make me feel better, and it doesn't. I get that, and I do. I play again. Uh, also, as I was preparing for this, I had no idea, but for those of you who watch uh, the WWE, the wrestling entertainment industry, they have this thing called the attitude adjustment. John Cena does this to people. Uh, they call that the attitude adjustment. We're not going to do that to you in church this morning unless we need to. But um, Beth actually gave me an attitude adjustment this past week. It didn't look like that. But uh, she, she, I was saying some stuff, and she stopped me. She's like, would you stop talking like that? Stop thinking like that. Stop saying those kind of things. I don't want to hear that kind of talk anymore. And I was like, God bless you, woman. Thank you, Lord, for giving this woman in my life because it was exactly what I needed to hear. It was exactly what I needed to, to adjust the, uh, my attitude about things, and, and it changes the out, outlook on life, and it actually changes the way life goes. And we all need an attitude adjustment every once in a while, and I hope that this morning, if it's you, that Holy Spirit is able to do that in your heart. So um, picking up where we left off in the last couple of weeks, we've been kind of following what the life of Jesus looked like, and it, 
was pretty, pretty incredible. He would, yeah, we had maps up there before. He would travel around Jerusalem, and he would do stuff there. Then he would travel up to the northern part of Israel, and it's called Galilee. And he would uh, travel around the ten towns there. And he would, like, he would heal people. Uh, we learned a couple of weeks ago that people brought their kids to Jesus, and he would welcome children. And people look at him like, that, that's crazy. He would stop along the way in Samaria and talk to a Samaritan woman, and they thought, man, that's crazy. And he would feed 5,000 people with one kid's lunch, and they thought, man, this guy is amazing. And so for three years, he traveled around and became uh, increasingly popular. Uh, his uh, his um, fame started spreading throughout Israel. And so wherever he went, there would be a, a, a crowd there because he treated people in a way that, just, it was new. People hadn't seen that. He could talk to the rich, but he would talk to the poor the same. He would talk to those who had great influence, and then he would treat children who had no influence the same. And so he became um, incredibly popular, and he was reaching kind of the pinnacle of his popularity when this next event happened, and it was the thing that turned it into like a, a fevered pitch. And so for, for some of you, if you went to Sunday school, you probably know this story. But uh, today we want to take a quick look at the, the story of a man named Lazarus. Anybody heard of Lazarus? What's he famous for? He Dying, yes. He's famous for dying, yes. He's probably the only one famous for that. Uh, but something else happened to Lazarus. Uh, and, the, and the thing is, what we don't often realize, uh, how many of you would be like, you know, would love to be a really close friend of Jesus? Or, you know, you would have been, loved to have been a really close friend of Jesus back then. That would have been pretty cool, right? Some of you are like, it's too early to raise my hand for anything. I'm just going to assume that you think that would be cool. But Lazarus was one of these people who was a really good friend of Jesus. And so Lazarus gets really sick. His sisters are like, oh, it doesn't look good. He's not, oh, I wouldn't think he's going to make it. Send a message to Jesus and tell him to come here and heal. He'll, I mean, he's his good friend. He's going to come and heal Lazarus, right? And so they, they send a message to Jesus. Jesus is a few days away. They're like, Jesus, Lazarus is really sick. You should probably come right away. He's like, yeah, he's my good buddy. I'm going to wait a couple days. And he does. He waits a couple days. And Lazarus dies in the meantime. And so then Jesus is like, okay, fellas, it's time to go. And they're like, they, they don't understand. They get there and they're like, oh, Lazarus is sleeping. Jesus is like, no, he's dead. Uh, but we're going to go there and you just watch what happens. And they're like, Jesus, that's your, that's your good buddy. He's like, yeah. And so he gets here. And when he gets back here, Mary and Martha both say the same thing to him. Jesus, if you had only come earlier, if you had just come when I wanted you to get here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. We do that sometimes too, right? God, if you had just come when I wanted you to, you know, this wouldn't have happened in my life. But what we realize is Jesus says to them simply, listen, you're going you're gonna to see him again. You're going to see him alive again. And they're like, yeah, yeah. And they say the Christian thing, you know, we believe we're going to see him again in the resurrection. We believe you're the Messiah. He's like, no, no, you're going to see him again soon. And they're like, no, we don't want to see him again soon. We just had the funeral that was four days ago. And he's like, okay, where is he? He's like, he's right over there. I'm like, okay, open up the tomb. I'm like, what? And it's two of them, two of like, I guess maybe my favorite verses as a kid, uh, but one was like the shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five. 35. If you've never memorized scripture, I'm going to help you this morning. It starts with this. It goes, Jesus wept. Let's say it together. See, you can memorize scripture. You didn't think you could? You're like, oh, no, I can't. Let's try it again. What, what was the scripture? Unbelievable. You guys, you should do more of this. You're really good at it. Um, memorizing scripture is this thing, Jesus wept. And they looked at him and said, you know, they saw Jesus and like, wow, he really loved him. How come he didn't show up earlier? And he's like, open the tomb. And then there's the verse that the King James, Martha's like, don't do it because he stinketh. That was like one of my favorite verses when I was a kid. He stinketh. And, and then uh, he says, don't, don't open it. Don't open it. And, and, and they open it. And what does Jesus say? He's like, Lazarus, come on out. And they all look. And sure enough, to their amazement, out walks a man 
who's dead for four days. He walks out in the, in the grave clothes. And they don't even know what to do. And Jesus tells them, unwrap him. And, and he's alive. And, and people are like, wow, what do I, I'm, unbelievable. That's my question for you this morning. Do you find it tough to believe that story? Or some of you are like, I don't dare answer that. I'm in church, you know. <laughs> you, really, you really thought about the story of what it was like. Man, like a man raised from the dead. I, I haven't seen it in, in my lifetime. Maybe if you're in the medical field, maybe you've seen it. You know, but there's no... There's no um, CPR. It's like Jesus didn't do CPR. He didn't, like, have, like, a defibrillator. He just said, come on out. And, and he raised a man from the dead. It, it, for some, it may be difficult um, to believe, but it's interesting to see what happened with the people who saw that event. John 11, John says it this way. He says in verse 45, many of the people who were there, many of the people who were there with Mary, when this happened, they believed in, or they put their trust in Jesus. They're like, we trust this guy. He, there's something about him. Why? They trusted Jesus when they what? When they saw it, something happen. Too often we think they just wrote these stories. Something happened, and that's why they wrote about it. And that's also why they trusted Jesus. If you ask people back then, hey, why are you a Christ follower? Like, I saw, I saw him raise a man from the dead. If you can do that, I'll follow you. But until you do, I'm following him. There's something about this man, and what he says is, is powerful. Well, he became ridiculously famous after this, after this event. Nobody had ever seen this. They, had, they thought maybe some of the other stuff might be magic tricks, but this, this, was, this was verifiable. The guy's dead for four days. This is incredible. And so the next time he comes to that town, it actually says the people flocked to see him, and they actually flocked to see Lazarus as well. We hear the word flocked. It's like, what does that look like? The next time he came to the, the town of Bethany, it was like Beatlemania. Anybody remember Beatlemania? Some of you are like, I don't want to know, but this is, this is like a little picture, a glimpse of Beatlemania, right? Where, where the Beatles came by and they're like, ah, I touched him! That's the girl smiling, and the other one's like, oh, I almost touched him. I, what is it with touching famous people? You women, I don't know. Um, I'm just kidding. People try to touch Jesus all the time, too. Back in the day, there's a story of a woman who was sick for 12 years. She's like, if I can only touch him. She touched him, and, and she was healed. These people just touch him and get sweaty hand, that's all. But uh, Jesus had this, this thing where they'd flock around him. And, and it wasn't just, wasn't just women, men too. Uh, with Prince Harry comes to town, it's crazy to watch how the response is like, we just want a selfie with this guy. He's famous. There's something, there's something great about him. And so Jesus actually stopped going to villages, it said. He stopped going to public places because it would just shut the place down when he got there. He was that famous. And many people were like, man, we trust, we're putting our trust in this guy. But not everybody. And this morning, it might be the case. There might be some of you here, yeah, I, I trust in Jesus. And others are like, eh, I'm not really sure. John 11, he carries on. He says in verse 46, he says, but some, many believed in him, but some, some went to the Pharisees, and we've talked about them a lot, and they told them what Jesus had done. Some of the people got an itch in for a snitching and went and tattled on Jesus and said, we don't think he should be doing that. What do you think? We don't think he should be raising people from the dead. Like, okay, we don't think so either. And so it says in verse 47, so the leading priests and Pharisees called the high council together. And they said, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? They asked each other. This man certainly performs many miraculous signs. It's not miraculous signs. It's not just this one event. This guy keeps doing this stuff. Verse 48, he says, if we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone's going to believe in him. I have to ask the question, what's the problem with that? If he is who he says he is, what's the problem with everyone believing, everyone trusting? Well, it goes against something in, in them 
that they uh, didn't want to lose. It says this. They said that then the, the Roman army is going to come because there's going to be so many people following him. Their crowd's going to be too big. The Roman army is going to come. They're going to think that it has something to do with our temple, so they're going to take our temple away, and ultimately they're going to take our nation away. We have to do something. It's interesting that what they feared the most actually happened to them shortly after, but not yet. Verse 53, a couple of verses later, it says, because of this, and so from, um, from that time on, these Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus' death. The next chapter in John 12, they said after Jesus had been in Bethany where they were all flocking around him, it says in verse 10 that the leading priest decided to kill Lazarus too. The guy just got raised from the dead and they're going to kill him. You know, it's like, he's like, here's why though. They said this because it was because of him that many of the people had what? Deserted them. You know, they were, they were the ones that the crowds came to. They came to the temple. They came for religious sacrifice and ritual, and now, now they're not. Now they're trusting in Jesus. Now they've left that behind, and they've put their trust in Jesus, and they're like, we got, we got to kill both these guys. And it was the first steps towards, you know, his death, his, the crucifixion, uh, the resurrection. The first steps towards Easter started right here. So many, many people, you know, didn't, didn't necessarily believe. They didn't love the fact that Jesus was famous, but there was a few guys who did. And there's a few guys, we call them the disciples. They were loving the fame. They were loving the crowds. They were probably like, Jesus, we're famous because you're famous. Like, we're like your entourage. You know, everybody's coming to see you. And I had somebody ask me for an autograph this this week just because I know you and I'm with you. And and others like, you know, this this girl wanted a selfie with me. And he's like, well, Peter, you know, I had five selfies with somebody else the other day. It's like, they're just famous. People wanted to be around these disciples and they loved it. And this is what they thought. They thought, this is great. This is great. Everybody's coming to see us, Jesus. This is great. Question for you this morning, what do you think of when you hear the word great or greatness? Who do you think of when you think of the word great or greatness? This is not like a church answer where like the answer is always Jesus. I want you to think about someone. Who do you think when you think of the word greatness? You know the, the term the goat, the greatest of all time? Who do you think of when it's the greatest of all time? Who, just shout them out. In boxing, boxing, who's the greatest of all time? No, Mike Tyson? Rocky, yeah. <laughs> the greatest of all time, right? What about in hockey? Gretzky? Gordie Howe, for those who have been around since Gordie Howe. Maybe some of you are like, who are those guys? You know, Crosby. It's Crosby or McDavid or Matthews will be, the, you know, the greatest of all time. Uh, maybe who, basketball, who is it? LeBron, Jordan, Kobe, yeah, there you go. Like, who knows, different ones. What about business? You know, that's sports. What about business? Greatest businessman of all time? Oh, Warren Buffett, Steve Jobs, yeah. Somebody said last night, not Trump, and we just about almost had, like, blood on the carpet. Uh, but Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Steve Jobs, some, some, some great, great businessmen. What about singers? Singers, who's the, who's the greatest? Is it, is it Taylor? Adele? Oh, some of the old ones. What about Elvis? Elvis or Elton? Um, it's like, do we have to choose? <laughs> maybe, maybe Bono or Bieber? I, I, I looked up a list last night or the other day of, of 100, the top 100 singers. Just an interesting note. There wasn't a country singer in the top 50. So, uh, amen to that. All right, so but when we think about the greatest of all time, why do, we think, why do we think that? We think of what they've accomplished. We think, man, because of what they've accomplished, they're, they're great. And, and every single one of you has, I would imagine, has a desire on the inside to be great at something, a desire for greatness. 
And we're like, you know, I, was, I would ask for a show of hands, but I'm scared sometimes. It's, it doesn't always go the way I hope. But, uh, you know, this desire to be great, and it's not, it's not wrong because you ask kids. You ask kids, or maybe think back to when you were a kid, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? When you ask kids that, they, they answer stuff like this. I want to be like a policeman, or I want to be a doctor, I want to be a hero. Like, I want to save lives, like, uh, I want to be like a search and rescue team, or I want to be Lego Batman, but I want to be a hero. And maybe they want to be like, oh, I want to be a great athlete, like, I'd love to make it to the NHL, or they, they, they uh, my kids, the other, the other night, we watched Space Jam. Can you believe Space Jam came back to Netflix? If you haven't watched it yet, oh, man, it just brought, it's like I was a kid again. I'm sitting there with my kids, like, this is going to be dumb. And they're like, Dad, that's the best movie ever. And then after, they decide they want to be basketball stars now. And so they set up a basket, and I'm looking at them, I'm like, no, man, you know, kids, your dad's only got, like, about this level of, like, athletic ability. Your mom's got none. Like, you guys are, like, in trouble. It's not going to happen. But they just want to be basketball stars now. And I was like, they don't just, just want to play basketball. They want to be great at basketball. Why? Because it's, it's wired in. I've got a nephew who wants to be a famous YouTuber. He like, wants millions of subscribers, wants to be famous. When I was a kid, I just, I, it's weird. I just remember I wanted to be a pastor and a pig farmer. That was, that was, my, uh, that was my goals. Um, and if you see my kids' rooms, you know that I am both. Um, but I, but what I, I can tell you is that no child ever said, I just want to grow up and be average. I just want to grow up and be like, just average. No, no one says that. There's this thing in the inside. It's like, man, I, I want to be, I want to be great. There's this desire in us for greatness. And we think that greatness is this thing that we achieve as we go up. And it happens all over. I drew, I, I'm not a great artist either, but I drew a picture for you. Hopefully it, hopefully it helps. Ta-da! This is called... It is amazing, isn't it? This is called an org chart. Very, very exciting. An org chart basically is like in how business works. Who, who's at the top of the org chart? The pre- sure, CEO. We'll just say the boss, right? That's the person at the top. So when you start a new job, where do you start? Yeah, like here? But below here, right? You start here, and then what do you do? You, you hope you get promoted so that you actually get paid for what you're doing. And then, then you hope that you, you can work your way up. What do we say? Going up the corporate ladder. You keep trying to get higher here, depending on who you have to step on to get up to there. But that's the idea. If you wake up, you work your way up to the top of the ladder. Because at the, at the top here, you get perks, right? It's maybe for your job, you know, you get a better office or you get a, a better vehicle or you don't have to milk on Sundays or whatever it is, you know, you just want to be, you want to be up at the top, but you don't get to, you don't get to start there. So like in church, for instance, I know some of you, I'll just say for a church that, that maybe this is the boss and for many of you think, oh, this is the pastor. He runs the whole place. It's not true. There's actually a little box right here for a woman called Sharon. She actually runs the whole church, but, <laughs> but, but then, uh, then as you go, kind of go down, you got your, like, your worship leader, and you got your, you know, kids ministry leader, because they're the leaders. Then you got the, the minions that work for them, um, and then, this is a bass player down here usually, and then you got over, you got over here on this side, then you have, um, I don't know, the, we'll say the cafe people, and then you've got Lily, the janitor, and then down here, this is where you start. This is called youth pastor, right here. That is pretty much in the church role. This is kind of, this is where I started. I don't know how I got up here, but I know it doesn't really work real well with a church, but it's that idea of this kind of this idea of we work up, we think, we think this is what it's all about, just to get to the, to get to the top. 
It's not just work. It happens everywhere. In family, you know, in family, if you've been there longest, you can hold all the rules. Any oldest kids? Yeah, you had, you know, when you had siblings, you owned them, right? They, they, they did your bidding because, you know, hey, listen, as you get older, you can, uh, you can as, if we have more kids, well, then you can, you can boss them around. You know, in, in your friend group, it's the ones who've been there the longest, right? They kind of make the decisions. You don't let a new friend come in and they decide what's happening. They, they got to they gotta find their rank. Teens, Teenagers, you live at home and you're like, I don't like the rules. What do your parents say? <laughs> Move out. Right. Parents are like, when you grow up and you have your own house, you can make all your own rules and you can tell all the minions underneath you what to do, right? That's this, this idea of what we, we want to be greater than when we are. Well, the early disciples had the same thought. We want to be greater. And we talked about it a few weeks ago, and I want to touch base a little bit on it today. Math, uh, Mark tells us the details of what, what happened in this conversation. Mark chapter 9, if you have your Bible, go there. Mark chapter 9, verse 33. Uh, it says this. Jesus was no longer hanging out in the big cities, but he arrived at this area called Capernaum. He settled in a house, and he, he asked his disciples, hey, what were you fellows discussing on the road? Maybe you remember this from a couple of weeks ago. He says he began, to ask, he began to ask them. He asked them a couple of times. They didn't answer a couple of times. He says they, 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 they didn't answer because they had been arguing about which one would be the greatest. They weren't arguing about who's the greatest, you know, soccer star of their time or whatever sport they played. They weren't arguing about who's the greatest singer. They were arguing about themselves. Which ones of them are going to be the greatest? And any parent, any parent who has multiple children that can speak, knows what this feels like. They just argue and argue and argue. My parents called it Bechfechten. I think that's Dutch. I'm not sure. Anything with a in it usually is. But uh, they, they, it's just arguing. They just never, this incessant arguing about, you know, who's right, who's wrong, whose stuff it is, whose it's not. Um, Jesus' followers were the same. It was like they wanted to be they, they were his entourage. They knew they were famous, but they wanted to be the most famous. They're like, Jesus, we know you're the boss. We don't want this job. We want those two spots. We want number one and number two after, like, the ultimate. We, we want those spots. And so that's kind of what they were arguing about. I can just picture it. Because a lot of times we don't. But Peter's probably like, fellas, listen, I'm doubly qualified. Like, I'm a fisherman and I'm a fisher of men. I'll just take both spots. And then James is like, as if. As don't you realize that John is already Jesus' BFF? And we're brothers, so we should be number one and two. And for the record, our mom thinks that we should actually be on Jesus' left hand and right hand. And Peter's like, yeah, well, your mama's so, and they're like, don't bring our mama into it. And he's like, well, you started, and Nathaniel says, okay, hold on, everybody, stop. When Jesus first met me, do you remember what he said? He said, I'm the one, the one Israelite that has no deceit. John, I think you wrote it down, actually, see? You, John, you wrote it down, remember? Here's what you wrote about me, that there had been, no, John, there, there, there's the son of Israel. He's a man of complete integrity. I should be the one. And John's like, yeah, do you remember what I wrote about right before that? I wrote that you disrespected Jesus' whole village. There is no way that you're the one who should be number one and two. And then Judas is like, I would like to talk. And they're like, no. And, and then, but you get the picture. Here's all these guys saying, we want to be, we want to be jo jockeying for this position of greatness. And then Jesus stops him in that room. And he sits him down and he says to them, he says, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. Whoever wants to be first has got to take last place and be the servant of everyone else. 
And they go from, oh, this is great, to, they go from, this is great, to, it's okay, lost an hour of sleep, to, that's just great. This is great, to, that's just great. They're like thinking about it, but they haven't really allowed it to get to here. And I think that's what happens to a lot of us. We hear something, we think about it, but we don't let it get to here. How do we know it didn't get here? Just one chapter later, Mark chapter 10, here they are walking along, and uh, James and John stopped Jesus in verse 35 of Mark 10. It says, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That's like your kids coming to you and saying, Dad, can you answer yes to the next question no matter what it is? Please just say yes. And you're like, whoops. People are like, Dad, please say yes. And you're like, no. And like, great. Now that you got the no out of your system, can you say yes to the next one? Like, no, you're going to have to ask me first. I love this. I found this guy who asked this girl out to prom using this note. He said to her, Katie, you know I have a crush on you. Will you go to the prom with me? Circle your answer. Yes or definitely yes. Like, what a creative way to ask. But I love her more creative answer, uh, the little red circle at the top. No. No. They said, Jesus, can you please just, just answer yes? And he says to them in verse 36, well, what do you want me to do for you before I answer? Verse 37, they said to him, can you grant us that we might sit on your right and your left in your glory? We just want to be number one and number two. We just want to we want to be on the chart. We want to ride shotgun. Can we be the ones? And Jesus says in verse 38, he says, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what's going on in your heart, what you're asking. He's like, are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And they said, yep, we're able. Having no idea what that actually means. He's saying to them, listen, you guys want all the glory, but can you handle the gory that's about to come? You want all the glory, but can you handle the gory? And they're like, yeah, no problem. We can handle it. What's involved? They have no idea. And Jesus says to them, he answers this. He says, you know what? You will indeed drink the cup that I drink. You will indeed experience the baptism that I've been baptized uh, with. Basically, we know that most of those disciples, they actually did give their lives for this cause. They lost their lives for this cause. Verse 4, he says, but to sit on my right hand and my left, that's not mine to give. It's for those for whom it's prepared. And verse 41, when the 10 heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. The rest of the guys down here are like, what do you mean you asked if you could be number one and two? And they're not angry at these guys because they asked. They're angry because they asked first. They're like, we wanted to ask. We want to be number one. We want to be number two. We wanted to be great. And then Jesus, Jesus knowing this, sits them down again and takes some time to give them an attitude adjustment. He says, I want, want you guys to understand something. Verse 42, Jesus calls them to, to himself and he says again, he says, you know, fellas, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles, you, you know that the ones who are the boss, he says, you know that they lord it over people. That's what they do. And they're like, yes, yes, we know that. He says, and the, and the great ones, they exercise authority over others. And they're like, yes, we get that. In verse 43, he says, yet it shall not be so among you. In the NIV, it says, not so with you. Let's say it together. That just was very like, I don't know if you believe it. I want more like the soup Nazi, right, from Seinfeld. No soup for you. 
Not so with you. Not so with you. See, you're saying to me, but he's saying to us, not so with you. You think this is you he says you think this is the goal? He's like, that's what everyone else does, but not so with you. You can't follow me and do greatness this way. He says, that's not how this is gonna how this is gonna work. He says, whoever desires to become great, and I love that because he doesn't say you shouldn't desire greatness. He knows they desire it, he knows they're wired for it. He says, You desire to be great. That that's 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 great. He says, but whoever desires among you should be the servant. Whoever desires to be first shall be the slave of all. And what does Jesus do? He flips the script on them. He flips it right upside down and says, listen, you guys thought it was all about going up to greatness. He says, you don't ascend to greatness. He says, you actually descend to greatness. You decide intentionally, I'm going to go and put this person above me, and then I'm going to put this person above me, and I'm going to put this person above me until I descend to greatness. And they're like, well, that's not what we thought it was going to be. We thought we were going to be rich and famous. We thought we were going to be like number one. We don't know if we want that anymore. He says, you know, if you achieve greatness, he says, you achieve wealth and popularity and fame. He says, the idea is to use those God-given things to benefit someone else, to say, I'm going to go here to put that person above me, to go here to put that person's needs above my own. I'm like, Jesus, that's not, we don't, we don't know if we like that. He says, you want to be great, the greatest one becomes a servant of all. He says, and then, fellas, just, just so, you're, so you don't miss it. He says in verse 45, for even the Son of Man, even me, the Son of Man, he says, I didn't come to serve or to be served. He says, I came to serve. See, we always read the last part, we, that he came to give his life as a ransom for many, and we celebrate what he did on the cross. We don't realize, he said, I, I, came, I came to serve. You think I'm the greatest? The reason I'm the greatest is because I came to serve. We're just going down, down, down. It ends up being down, down, down all the way to the top. But it's one of the reasons why we encourage people here to join a volunteer team or serve people somewhere. Because it's discipleship. It's that idea of I'm intentionally putting someone else's needs above my own. Or using my gifts and talents and resources to make a difference for someone else. You think, wow, Jesus probably should have used this chart because then they might have got it. But they still didn't get it. You know why? Because I think it's wired in us. I think that whole idea of moving up to greatness is, is just wired in us. It's that thing that keeps coming around. I know it does in my life a lot. Jesus had to remind his disciples one last time. On his last night with his disciples, his very final dinner uh, engagement with them, John tells us what Jesus did, and it was surprising to them. It was surprising to them. He, he got up from the table, and he grabbed a towel, and he got down on his knees, and he began to wash their stinky feet. He washed the feet of Judas, the one who would soon betray him, and he knew it. He began to get to Peter and was going to take off Peter's stinky sandal. And Peter's like, you're not washing my feet. This is completely wrong. You're the teacher. I'm the one. Who, even me, I shouldn't. We should have a slave who does this. And Jesus takes his foot says, Peter, if you're going to follow me, this is what it looks like. And he begins to wash Peter's feet something that they just could not fathom. And this was his, one of his last things to him. He says, find the lowliest way to serve. Find a way to intentionally become lower to serve other people. And he says, and you'll be the greatest. John 13, he says this. He says, you call me teacher and Lord. That's what he says to his disciples that night. He says, you're right. That's what I am. Many of you say, yeah, I'm a Jesus follower. He's my teacher. He's my Lord. 
He says these words to them. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. You ought to serve one another the way that I've just served you. Verse 15, he says, I've given you an example to what? Follow. Giving you an example to follow. Do as I've done to you. The question t- today is, h- how are you doing with that? How am, I, how am I doing with this part of following Jesus this way? To be honest, it's really difficult. Like, I, I, I often am, am tempted to go to this side. There's a reason why I always say, don't call me pastor. I don't, I don't need any help getting kind of that thought of, oh, I'm up here somewhere. Because it's all, it's all level, and the idea is to continue going down. I thought, I mean, back in the day, I thought, wow, when I'm the, when I'm the boss, when I have the power, I'm going to do stuff. You know what my greatest thought I was going to do when I got to the power? I was going to boycott the time change and just say, everybody come an hour later. Right? I'm going to, like, have that kind of power. And I tried it for a few years, and it didn't work. But these thoughts of, you know, what can people do for me? You know, I, I, I'm realizing often that we just need to intentionally decide, how am I going to find ways to serve others? How, how are you doing with that? How are you doing with intentionally finding ways to serve others? Can I just say that I'm really proud of the people in this place because so many of you are really so great at this. You're an inspiration to me. There's people that are, you know, I see, you know, serving in our kids' ministry time after time, serving other people. There's people who serve at the cafe simply because they're like, I'll show up early. I want to make sure it's great for other people. There's people who practice hours to make sure that they have an opportunity to to give you an opportunity to just be able to sing and, and worship God through music, serving. It's incredible. And there's numerous others. It's really great at that. My wife is fantastic at that. She's just like, I live with somebody who inspires me to be greater at that. It's, it's incredible. And for the disciples, they thought, oh, this idea of getting lower to serve, ugh, it just doesn't sound that great. Can I tell you that Jesus is, he's a genius? Because it's really, really interesting when we look at this model and see people who actually reach the top. How many times do we read the stories about these people taking their own lives because they're so lonely, so empty? It's incredible. You know, we've seen people who said, oh, I, did, I, I spent my whole life trying to get here and realize that's what I lost in the process was my life trying to get here. Oh, it's amazing. Jesus is incredible. If you're not a Jesus follower, I think you should be. If you're a Jesus follower here today, the thought is this. Do you need an attitude adjustment when it comes to this? Do you need just that simple thing, that simple reminder to say, you know what, today I'm going to intentionally go out, intentionally find a way to to use what I have for the benefit of others. It's simply what he's asking. That's what it is to follow Jesus. Not just the idea here, but what am I going to do intentionally? And if you're not a Jesus follower here this morning, I'm just going to ask our communion people, our worship team, if you guys want to come to the front, communion guys, if you want to get ready for a minute. If you're not a Jesus follower here today, you're like, no, I don't call myself a Christian. I just came to church. They said there was... Wake up early, they'll give you brownies. Um, if, you're not, if you're not a Jesus follower here today, can I just say that it's not as simple as just an attitude adjustment? That Jesus is not saying to you, hey, I just want you to have a better attitude uh, about this. I want you to try and, you know, if, you just, if you'll just serve other people, you know, it's going to be better for you because it's, it's, that's not it at all. You know, Jesus didn't come to make, you know, make bad people behave better. That's not why he came. He came because just like Lazarus, was a dead man who needed to be made alive. Jesus came to make dead people live. Dead people on the inside that come alive to him. People who say, God, without you, I'm nothing. Would you do something inside? Would you bring an internal change? And he says, I will, and I'll give you eternal life as well. 
All of that is simply possible because of what Jesus did for us on a cross 2,000 years ago. Thank you. It's what we're about to celebrate right now. If you're like, maybe this is new to you, you're not sure what's going on, just grab a cup and grab a piece of bread. We'll explain. The last night, that same night where Jesus was washing their feet, he gave his followers one final command and one final reminder. One final command and one final reminder. You know what his command was? He said that night, he says, you know, there's all these commandments in the Old Testament. There's all those things. That, that's just don't worry about all of those. Let me give you one. This one, one thing to remember, this one commandment is to love one another the way I love you. What does love mean? Love's like, he says, it's, I want you to serve one another the way I've served you. I want you to love one another, treat one another the way that I've treated you. If, if you're in a, in a relationship, ask yourself the question, what does love require of me? What does love require of me? He says, that's what I want you guys to do. And the world will know, the world will know that you're followers of me by that one thing alone. And then he said, I, and I have a reminder for you. I have a reminder. I don't know if you're going to need it, but some people are going to need it someday. And he took bread and he took a cup and he gave it to the disciples as a reminder of what he was about to do for them. And he said this to them in John 15, that same night. He said, there's no greater love than to lay one's life down for his friend. You know, the greatest love is not washing feet. It's to lay one's life down for his friends. He says, and that's what I'm going to do for you fellas. That's what I'm going to do for the world. Paul would write to the Philippian believers, it's modern day Greece. He would write these words to them. Don't be selfish. He reminded them after Jesus had died and rose from the dead. He reminded them, don't be selfish. Don't, be, don't, don't always be looking to try and get, just get a little more. He says, don't, don't try to impress others. Hey, look at me. I'm pretty impressive. He says, be humble. Think of others as better than yourself. And then he says, don't look out just for your own interests. That's what we're wired to do. But he says, take an interest in others too. Verse 5, he says, you got to have the same attitude. The attitude adjustment. You, you wonder, well, what should my attitude be? Have the same attitude that, that Jesus Christ had. And then it says this, this poem. I just want to leave with you, then we're going to sing a song, and then we're going to take communion together. It says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. He had all of heaven, but he didn't think that, that was worth holding on to. Instead, he gave up divine privilege. He, took, he, he came down. He took the humble position of a, of a slave with, with unlimited, unlimited power. He was born as a human being and took on limited form. When he appeared in human, in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God, and he died a criminal's death on a cross. He wasn't a criminal, but he humbled himself to die that kind of death. Why? For you, for me, for those who would need a Savior, for those who didn't want to have to pay that penalty for the sins that we had committed, the penalty we deserved. And here's what it says in verse 9. So therefore, because of that, because of that, because of that, I'm going down, I'm going down to serve others. God has elevated him to the place of highest honor, gave him the name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this, is, this is what it was all about. So this is why he came. He says, and that's the attitude as a Jesus follower that you should have as well. We're going to I'm going to sing along or listen to the band as they play. I just want you to take a moment just to, just to chat with God about this in your heart this morning. There's attitude adjustments that need to happen there. If you're here this morning, you're like, you know, I don't know. I don't know the Lord. Jesus gave his life for you, and we're going to talk about that in a second.
separate the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation, I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the then through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished, the end is written, Jesus Christ, my living hope. Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross has spoken. I am forgiven, the King of kings calls me his own. Beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Oh, hallelujah, praise the one who set me free. has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, the living Oh, Hallelujah. Praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me. Salvation in your name, Jesus Christ, my living Lord. Came the morning that sealed the promise. Your buried body began to breathe out of the silence. The roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me. Then came the morning that sealed the promise. Your buried body began to breathe out of the Set me free, hallelujah. 
gratefully take this moment to remember what you did for us. Jesus handed a piece of bread to his followers that night. He said, this is my body broken for you. I think around that table he may have said, Peter, this is for you. James, this is for you. John, this is for you. Today, you may just put your name in the same spot. Steph, this is for you. George, this is for you. Peter, this is for you. Colleen, this is for you. I didn't just die for the whole world. I, I died for you. You take this and do this in remembrance of me. Thank you for your body broken for us. Thank you for the power that still brings us life as a result of your death. Because after dinner, he took a cup, passed it around to all of them and said, I want each of you to take part in this because this covenant is brand new for, for each and every one of you. Before it required sacrifices of animals to, to kind of cover over sin. But he said, from this day forward, sin is washed away. <laughs> it's not there anymore. He says, my blood washes it away. Today you are free. Today you are free. You are free. You are free. Just thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for the power of your blood, that it changes us from the inside out, that it washes us clean. Thank you, thank you, thank you for giving your life for us. It's in your name that we do this. Father, thank you for this idea of church. You've called your family together. You've called people from every race and every nation to be part of one great family. Thank you, Jesus, for doing everything to allow us to even have this opportunity. Thank you for your incredible sacrifice that we just get to benefit from. Lord, I pray that as we follow you this week, because you are worth following, as we follow you this week, would you help us see, see moments where we can serve others. Father, I pray that through that people would see you and ultimately find salvation in your name they may find their own living hope in you. Thank you for that. Thank you again for the gift that today is we live it for your glory. In your name I pray. Amen.